Okay, so we're going to have another talk. Right? So that's just to help you. It's not a meditation. It's a talk. It's time for more formation, you know. Learning about the things of our faith. To be better equipped when we leave this retreat to face the world and everything that it has. Okay? So the name of this talk, in Spanish, they're called Los Novisimos. In English, it's called The Four Last Things. It sounds like a very epic title. The Four Last Things. I don't know if anyone knows, like, right off the bat what those could possibly be. You can just think about it for a moment. I won't ask you. You'll just see for yourself if you were right or not. With him. The four last things refer to uh, the four last things that we will ever go through in our, in our lives and in our death. It's death, judgment, heaven, or hell. Those are the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, or hell. And why are we going to talk about this? Um, because nobody ever does. And it's the one thing we know that everyone has to go through. Right? There's kind of like this, death is like this taboo subject, you know. No one ever goes there. People just start to get really, really, really uncomfortable. Um, but really, it's going to be more uncomfortable if you don't think about it until you're actually going through it. Because all of a sudden, you're going to be faced with, what have I lived? What's going to happen? And it's too late now <laughs> to change anything. Right? So it's actually good to stop and think about it beforehand. Um, there's this play in Spanish called um, El Divino en Paciente. Like, how would you translate that? Like the divine impatient one. It sounds better in Spanish. Right? And basically what it's about, it's St. Ignatius of Loyola, when he first started to kind of run his spiritual exercises, um, he was at a university, and he was looking for young men who might want to go on these exercises and make that decision to give your life to God. Because that's what the exercises are all about. It doesn't mean being a priest or being a sister. It just means taking time to stop and think about why I'm here in life and what my goal is. And the whole purpose is to get to the point where you're entirely open to whatever God wants to do in your life, and you're willing to give your all. That's the whole purpose of spiritual exercises. And um, there's another saint called St. Francis Xavier, um, who was a huge apostle. He was at this university where St. Ignatius was. And St. Ignatius could see the battle going on in St. Francis, because St. Francis was a nobleman, he had a lot of money, and he was really into partying. And he really enjoyed life. And St. Ignatius was just behind him over and over and over again. Come with me. Come on this retreat. Give it a chance. Because he saw this fire inside of St. Francis, and he knew. He, he used to say, if, if I'm able to win over St. Francis, right? if I'm able to win over Francis for love of God, he will set the world on fire. If I win him, he will win me the world for God because he had so much zeal, right? He had, his character, his personality was the type that were like, whatever he was going for, that was it, he was gonna get it. 
but at the time it was it was parties, right? And he wanted to just kind of like redirect that into love of God. Um, and so this entire play, the first half of it is about this kind of uh, relationship between Saint Francis and Saint uh, Saint Ignatius and Saint Francis. Ignatius trying to convince Francis to just surrender to God. And then the second half is everything that Francis did in his life um, after he finally gave his life over to the Lord. Um, and it's a beautiful play, but at the very, half, kind of halfway through that, um, because St. Ignatius started the, the Jesuit order, and St. Francis ended up becoming a Jesuit. And there's this really emotional scene when Francis is gonna be a missionary, and he actually leaves Europe, and he never comes back. And so there's this huge, like, goodbye moment between Ignatius and Francis. And Francis gets on his knees in front of Ignatius, and Ignatius kind of lays his hands on his shoulder and starts to pray for him. And it's like this goodbye speech mixed with a prayer and like final pieces of advice. And one of the things that Ignatius says to Francis is, never go to bed at night without having spent at least a moment meditating on death and judgment. Experience has taught me that resting upon the severity of these profound thoughts is worth more than trading your pillow for stone or wood. Right? He's talking about doing penance. Right? He's saying spending a moment every night before you go to bed thinking about death and judgment is going to do more good for your soul than the penance that you're doing or the penance you could do. Right? You could decide... Jesus, for love of you, I'm gonna stop using my pillow and I'm gonna sleep on a piece of wood or I'm gonna sleep on a rock, right? Fantastic, talk to your spiritual director before you do anything like that. But what St. Ignatius is saying is it's gonna be better for your soul to think about death and judgment every night than doing that kind of penance. Because we need to stop and think about what's gonna happen at the end before it's too late to change things. Because we only have one life to live. And once it's over, it's over. There's no, no way back, right? We're Catholic, we don't believe in reincarnation, right? You only get one shot at this. Very good, so we're just gonna jump into it. All right, the first one, the first of the last four things, obviously going in order, is death, right? Death. What is death? Why is it so scary? Right? So man is made up of body and soul. I think we probably all know that. The body is the physical part, and the soul is the spiritual part. The soul is invisible. We can't touch it, but we know it's there. And the soul gives life to the body. And the Catechism in number 362 says that the human person created in the image of God, is a being at once corporeal and spiritual. That means his body and soul. The biblical account expresses this reality in symbolic language when it affirms that then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man, whole and entire, is therefore willed by God. Every human being that exists, that ever has existed, and that ever will exist, is entirely willed by God. 
Our parents obviously play a role in this, but the soul is infused by God himself, which means there are no accidents. Everyone comes forth from the hand of God, and everyone has been given a task or a mission to complete in this world. Right? No one is forgotten. No one is just pure chance, you know, do whatever you want because I hadn't thought about making you. Right? Each one is willed and loved by God. And God is expecting us to do something with our lives. And that should be a comforting thought because it means that your life isn't indifferent. It doesn't mean someone's out there controlling things. It means that you were made for a purpose. And if you were made for a purpose, that means that you have meaning. Right? Man searches for meaning over and over and over again. And we suffer when we don't find the meaning to our life. So the fact that we know that God has given us a mission and that we are willed and desired and loved by him is a very comforting thought. Right? Our goal is to figure out what that is. I have two sisters, I'm a triplet, um, and my dad, from the time we were very little, uh, he always told us, you know, God has something, like, for your life. You have to figure out what it is. And he would always, he's a very, like, systematic man. Okay, so he would just, like, list off the options. He was like, okay, you have three options in life, right? You can be a nun, you can get married, or you can be a lay consecrated, right? And you have to ask God what he wants from you. Sounds really simple when you hear it like that. <laughs> right? But that's what it comes down to. You're made for something and you're made for a purpose. God already has everything kind of figured out. He has everything that he's inviting us to do. Right? And all we have to do is place ourselves in his presence and open ourselves up to his will. So man is body and soul together. Right? And in the beginning we saw the other day that Adam and Eve were created in this unity of body and soul, and that in the beginning, they were not going to die, right? Immortality, bodily immortality was a gift that God gave them from the beginning. But we know from the Book of Wisdom, chapter 2, 23, it says, God created man for incorruption and made, in, and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. And then Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one, man, through one man, and death through sin. So where did death come from? From sin. Through the envy of the devil who tempted man to sin, and man fell. That's when death and suffering entered into the world which means death for man was not part of God's original plan, which is why it's so repulsive for us. There's something in us that just rebels at the thought of having to die. And it's because it wasn't originally part of God's plan for man. So death, strictly speaking, is the separation of body and soul. Right? If man is a composite, a unity of body and soul, death is when body and soul separate. We know that the body remains here on earth and decomposes, right? with the exception of our Blessed Mother. Right? She was assumed body and soul into heaven, 
precisely for that reason, so that she wouldn't have to go through corruption. But the soul is immortal. The body stays here, the soul is immortal, right? Which means the soul cannot die. The soul continues to live separated from the body, and as we see in a moment when we talk about judgment, the soul presents itself before God in the moment of death. And one of the beautiful things about reflecting on death, because we see, I guess death helps us to understand part of the gravity of sin and how bad it really is. Like if you think of how bad death is, just think that's one of the consequences of sin. So sin must be pretty bad, right? Because usually the effect is greater than the cause. Right, so if one of the, or sorry, the, the cause is greater than the effect. So if one of the effects is death and death is pretty bad, well, sin must be terrible. Right? But the beautiful thing is that from the very beginning, God immediately promises Adam and Eve that he would save them. And I think this is important. It's one of the things that we struggle with. Um, we struggle to understand it, but God promises immediately that he would save them, even from death and sin. Right? It would have been entirely just on God's part to just leave us as we were. Because he warned Adam and Eve what would happen. He said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. Right? And Adam and Eve sinned and betrayed God. And the consequence of that was sin and death. God would have been entirely just to leave us in that circumstance. But the thing that we've seen over and over and over again in this retreat is that God is love, and he is our father. And looking upon us as his children, he said, love won't allow me to just leave them as they are. I have to do something else. I have to give them another chance. And he promises a savior. And we can see this in the Old Testament over and over again. Um, there's a really nice quote from Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, verse 6 and 7 through 9. I'm going to read it really fast because I think it does a good job of kind of summing up the hope that man has and had, you know, that God one day would come and conquer even sin and death. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all people the web that is woven over all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will remove from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, Behold our God, to whom we looked to save us. This is the Lord for whom we looked. Let us rejoice and be glad that he has saved us. It's a beautiful quote, right? So that's the people of Israel knowing that one day on a mountain, the Lord will save his people, right? Jesus was crucified on the hill, Golgotha, right outside Jerusalem. And in the moment that he died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he conquered death and he conquered sin forever. But the part that sometimes is hard for us to understand is we immediately think, okay, if God, if Jesus conquered death and sin, 
why do I still have to die? Where is that victory? Where is it? And John Paul II um, has an apostolic letter called Salvifici Dolores, where he talks about the meaning of suffering. The entire letter is on the Christian meaning of suffering. How do we understand what's going on? And he says that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, destroys the dominion of sin. I think that part is easier for us to understand. Jesus destroyed sin forever by taking our sins upon himself and dying on the cross and rising again. Because of his death and resurrection, we have the possibility of living in a state of grace. We have sanctifying grace, which gives us new life, and that's the victory over sin. And he goes on to say, in the wake of his victory over sin, he also takes away the dominion of death by his resurrection, beginning the process of the future resurrection of the body. Right? Jesus died. He was dead. Right? He went through a human death. Right? His soul left his body, and his body was buried. But three days later, he came back to life. Because death has no power over the one who is life itself. And our resurrection, our victory over death is hidden in his death and resurrection. We have to die on this earth, but our death is not eternal. As Catholics, we believe in the resurrection of the body, which means even though we have to pass through this death, which is a just consequence of sin, the time will come when we will be raised from the dead and live with Christ forever. And that's where the victory is. Even though it's hard to see here and now at times, the victory is there, and it's certain. And that's, that's our hope. We can live grace in sanctifying life now, and later on we will enjoy the resurrection of the dead. And I think it's, it's important as well to remember what Father Luke mentioned the other day when he was talking about suffering. He said that suffering isn't taken away by Jesus' death and resurrection, and it can't be explained. But it is entirely permeated by Christ's presence. Jesus didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to. All of us have to suffer, and justly. God freely chose to take on suffering for love of us. Because he wants us to know that everything that we're going through, he's already been through. Every struggle we have, He's faced that same struggle, and he's overcome it. And he's beat it by his loving obedience to the Father. Which means all we have to do is hold on to him and ask him to bring that victory into our life. Because he's already done it. It's already won. I remember a few years ago, um, one of our sisters had, uh, our mother's superior, actually she had cancer. and thanks be to God, uh, our Lord decided to heal her and leave her here with us more time. Um, but I remember afterwards at one point she was talking about her experience of suffering, her experience of going through all of the cancer treatment. And she said in a certain way, she almost like missed the experience 
of going through that time of suffering because she felt the Lord so close to her when she was going through all of that. And it's true, the Lord kind of has this special predilection for people who are going through suffering and going through hard times. He's there present to us, sometimes much more powerfully than in the moments that are easier. Which can also, what she was saying, like almost wish that you were suffering more because there's just this special presence of the Lord in the midst of that suffering. And it's his comfort, him wanting to be with us and to say, keep going, it's gonna be okay. Right, the suffering is gonna bear fruit. So that's death. We all have to go through it. We don't know the day or the hour, we just have to be ready. What happens after death? That's judgment. The Catechism in number 1021 says that death puts an end to human life as the time open to either accepting or rejecting the divine grace manifested in Christ. This life is the only time that we have to either accept or reject the grace that God is offering us. Once we die, it's over. We can kind of imagine it as just like the soul being frozen, just as it is. It can no longer accept or reject the grace of God. That has to be done here on earth. And in this sense, it really is kind of like the moment of truth. Because I think all of, you, all of you have probably had the experience of maybe at least going through a struggle or a battle and you don't want anyone to know what's going on. Um, and especially women, I think we're particularly capable of like living a double life or like pretending we're one way and really being another way. In the moment of death, that's not possible anymore. Right? We, we can hide things from our friends, we can hide things from our family, and we can even try to like hide things from ourselves. But once we die and we present ourselves before the Lord, there's no more hiding. You're either in grace or you're not in grace. You're either following the Lord or you've rejected the Lord. And that's it. There's nowhere else to hide. All of the masks are torn away. Every image we've ever tried to build for ourselves and kind of hide behind just isn't there anymore. And it's just your soul in front of God. And the Catechism tells us that every person will be rewarded immediately after death in accordance with his works and faith. This is called the particular judgment or personal judgment. Right after death. Right? There's a universal judgment later on. If we get that far in the talk, we'll talk about, it, talk about it later. But this is our personal judgment. The soul it presents itself before God to receive its merit, its reward. And the biblical foundation, I guess, for this kind of this teaching, what we believe in as Catholics, there's two passages. I'm sure you're familiar with both of them. One of them is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. 
And the other one is the story of the good thief from Luke 23, 39 to 43. If you want to look over that later. So I'm sure you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was the poor man who was laying outside the rich man's door and just begging every day to at least eat the scraps that fell from his table. And the rich man over and over again said no, right? And we know Lazarus dies, and it says that he's carried over to the bosom of Abraham, and then the rich man dies. And then you see this, Jesus is telling the story, this, this scene of the rich man being tormented in the flames of hell and crying out to Lazarus saying, please just come over, dip your finger in water and touch the tip of my tongue to cool my tongue because I am dying in anguish in these flames. Um, it's a powerful story. And at that point, um, Lazarus says, you know it's impossible for anyone to go from here to there or there to here. It's all over. Um, it's a powerful story, but what it goes to show is that heaven and hell is a reality, and it happens immediately after death. There's no, like, waiting time. As soon as you die, your soul presents itself before God, and that's it. Which should be a great joy, really. I mean, if we're living the way that we should be, <laughs> the thought of finally being able to place yourself in the presence of God, which should just, like, make you melt right now. Right. Um, St. Augustine actually said, I don't know if you know St. Augustine's life, but he was, he, was a, he was a sinner. Big time. Right? Really big sinner. If you're, if you're not familiar with his life, it's, it's one of those ones uh, worth getting to know. But he finally had his conversion, and he gave himself entirely to God, and started to live a life of holiness. And at one point in his life, and his mother, St. Monica, another saint, literally, right? she's a canonized saint, she would cry for him day after day after day, asking God to grant him the grace of conversion. And grace finally touched his heart, and he converted. Right? His mother was a wonderful woman, and she loved him to pieces. But St. Augustine said, I fear more being judged by my own mother than being judged by God. Right? Most of us thinking right now would probably... I prefer my mom to judge me because, of course, like I hide things from her, and that just might go over better, you know. She's just she's my mom. I'm her like baby girl, so that should be great. Um, no, Saint Augustine knew that it's far better for us to be judged by God. And if we're in a state of grace and we're seeking the Lord and we're living where we're supposed to live, death, apart from like the unknown factor, it shouldn't be something scary. Obviously, that's a process of purification because a lot of times at the beginning, all you can see is like, oh my gosh, if I go right now, I just don't know what's going to happen because there's so much still to change, there's so much to, to purify. And there we have the complete confidence that God wants all of us to be saved. We are in God's hands and he desires our salvation, which means he knows the time and the hour and he's going to be doing everything that he can to guide us along the path so that when the moment comes, we're ready. Right? Uh, St. John of the Cross, St. John of the Cross says that at the evening of life, we shall be judged on our love. That means when death comes, at the very end, the only thing that we're going to be judged on is whether or not we've loved. 
That's why we talked about yesterday, about how Satan tempts us with riches and vainglory and pride. All of that is staying here, right? We kind of have that image of St. Peter as like the gatekeeper of heaven. Um, well, St. Peter's not going to ask us, you know, how well we did on the leaving cert or how much money we were getting in our jobs or how many friends we had or how many likes we had on Facebook or whatever you might be into, right? St. Peter is simply going to look at whether or not we've left. And that's it. In the end, that's the only, only, only thing that matters. Whether we've loved God above all else, and whether we've loved others and ourselves the way that God wants us to. First Corinthians chapter 3, 12 and 13 kind of mentions this. St. Paul says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Right? So St. Paul kind of gives us the image of a building, right? a building that will later be tested with fire. So if we built with straw or hay or anything that's kind of like lighter, it's just gonna go up in flames, right? And when the fire passes, there's nothing left, right? But if you've built on a solid foundation, which is Christ, with stone and with brick, that withstands the fire, right? It's the image that St. Paul uses to talk about how we have to build the way that God wants us to build and we have to build in love because it's the only thing that's gonna be left afterwards. St. John of the Cross talks a lot about this as well. Um, and I think it can kind of be helpful reflecting upon judgment just to go back to the first talk we had on the principle and the foundation of exercises where we heard that man is created to praise, reverence, and serve God and by this means to save his soul. So we know that this is the only reason we're in this world. We're in this world to know, love, and serve God and through that to save our soul. That's it, that's the only thing. And if we don't make it to heaven, if we don't fulfill this goal, it's no one else's fault, it's just mine. But this is the sole purpose of my existence. Which means it's serious business. <laughs> there are like little mistakes you can make in life and that's okay, right? But this is what makes it or breaks it. I remember right after um, Sister Claire died, I was in Spain at the time giving catechism to adults in, in a parish. And we shared with them about the life of Sister Claire and how she had passed away in an earthquake. And most of them were just really upset <laughs> and thinking, how is it possible that God would call someone to himself who's only 33, who had so much to offer and was doing so much good? And this is kind of what we had to place in front of them. The fact that our purpose here in, in life is to know, love, and serve God and to make it to heaven. To serve God and then be with him forever. Which means it doesn't matter whether you die when you're 33 or 85, right? If you're 33 years old and the Lord calls you and you've 
loved and served the Lord and you make it to heaven, your life has been a success. You can put a nice big check mark there. Success. All right? If you're 85, you've lived a full life, uh, tons of family, tons of friend, everyone, friends, love, everyone loves you, and you die, and you haven't loved and served God, and you don't make it to heaven, your life has been a complete failure. Age doesn't matter. It's either heaven or it's hell. And that's it. And it was interesting talking to them about this because a lot of them wouldn't necessarily have a whole lot of faith. Um, but they recognized that, you know, that's probably right. And it was just like, you know, like the staring at you, like, oh gosh, <laughs> hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. But that means, that means a lot. <laughs> but it was good. It was good for them. Um, okay, so then the catechism in number 1022 says that each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ either entrance into the blessedness of heaven through a purification or immediately, or immediate and everlasting damnation. Right? That's, that's the catechism. Right? Either entrance into the blessedness of heaven or immediate and everlasting damnation. I don't know about you, but I kind of prefer heaven. So we're going to talk about hell first, just to be able to end on a high note, you know? Because <laughs> otherwise it's like, oh yeah, good luck with your exercises. <laughs> right. So here goes. We're going to talk about hell briefly. Okay. So, first point. Hell is a reality. Right? Even though very few people like to talk about it, it's kind of disappeared from subjects and homilies. You don't hear about it in grade school, right? No one wants to talk about hell. But it's, it's really not fair. Because it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. The worst, by far, right? Is that you die, and all of a sudden you realize, that's it, it's over, and I'm in hell. And no one ever warned me that this was a real possibility. Right? It's the greatest injustice that we can do to anyone is not tell them the truth when there's something so high at stake, right? So hell is a reality. God calls us to communion with himself. God calls us to a loving relationship. We can't lose that from, from view, right? That's the goal. The goal is heaven, but what is heaven? Heaven is that intimate relationship with God that is going to fill us entirely. But the reality of the situation is that I cannot force you to love me. Right? Love is free. It's a free choice. Which means God, wanting to call us to himself in a relationship of love, had to give us the possibility. He had to give us freedom, which means we have the possibility of denying that free gift and choosing, I don't want to love you. Right? It's a risk that he took in order to make love a possibility. And that's how hell exists, right? We could talk about the fall of the angels, right? 
we know from the book of Revelation that a third, the angels, Adam and Eve were, placed, were put to the test in the book of Genesis. We know that before that, the angels were also put to a test. And God gave them the free choice as well, to serve him or not to serve him. And a third of the angels, through sheer pride, decided they did not want to serve God. And so the book of Revelation talks about this epic battle between the two-thirds of the good angels and the one-third of the bad angels. Right? And St. Michael, as the captain kind of, of the army of God, thrust all of the other bad angels out of heaven and cast them down into hell. Right? So those bad angels are now what we call demons. Right? That's the reality. Hell was created for the fallen angels. It was not something that God originally wanted. Was it a possibility? Yes. But it was created for them because they chose not to serve God. So the Catechism goes on to say that we cannot love God if we sin gravely against him. So loving God and mortal sin are complete opposites. Right? God gives us the gift of grace and baptism, but that grace can be cast out of my soul when I commit a mortal sin. And the Catechism in number 1033 goes on to say, to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. Through mortal sin, I freely choose to cast God out of my heart and to live separated from him. If I die in that state of separation, that separation stays like that forever. And the result is hell. Not because God isn't merciful and God doesn't want my salvation, but because he's given me the choice and I've chosen, I prefer myself over you. I prefer to love creatures more than love of you. And the Lord has to respect that freedom. The Catechism goes on to say that the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. If we go back to the talk we had yesterday, we long for love. We are created for an intimate relationship with God. And so the hardest thing about hell is knowing that forever I'm going to be separated from that love. And it's entirely my fault. It was interesting. We were reading at one point, which saint was it? I think it was St. Bridget of Sweden. I think it was her. I think it was her. There's a lot of saints who have had like mystical experiences, <coughs> and some of those experiences are like really, really, really intense. Um, but she was actually given the possibility of like seeing in a vision. Um, some souls passing through their particular judgment, like their personal judgment. So she was there just like watching the scene. And these souls would present themselves before the Lord. And the ones who were saved, fantastic. Everyone was happy. You know, they're finally in front of God. God is inviting them to heaven. Everyone's happy. But the actual, the souls that were condemned to hell, she saw how Jesus was in front of them. And Jesus kind of as the, the judge in this trial, if you want to imagine it like that. 
Jesus said to the souls, you know, we're going to let the souls, this soul that is presenting itself now for judgment, we're going to let this soul speak for itself. And the soul itself, that person, chose their own condemnation because they couldn't stand to be in the presence of God because they had lived their life rejecting him. Which means when they finally get in front of him and they're before him, they continue to reject him. So there is no image of God like sending someone to hell. It's us. We choose with our actions where we want to go. And Jesus, who wants our salvation and desires us to be with him forever, has to accept that choice. But he does everything he possibly can while we're still in this world to give us the grace to change and to convert and to ask for forgiveness. And that's why in Matthew, the Lord says to us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Which means we're in battle, right? It's going to take a fight and an effort to get there, but it's well, well, well worth it. Which is why we're going to talk about heaven now. <laughs> As we talked about that, all of you just kind of like sank into your seats a bit. <laughs> this is really like dark and dreary. No, but it's great because today we are um, contemplating the resurrection, you know, um, and we have the resurrected Lord here in front of us saying to us once again, I beat all of that. It's all over. Everything is in my hands. Right? Everything that Jesus suffered, this, this, is, this is important. You can think about this one and just chew on it at some point. Um, if Jesus had not come, all of us, all of us, would have gone to hell. Regardless of how we lived. Heaven was closed. Right? Which means that same suffering, the one that I made for, is now beyond my grasp. And I am stuck with myself and loneliness and hatred forever. That was what we were all going to get justly if Jesus had not come to save us. So now Jesus stands before us as the resurrected Lord, as the risen Lord, as the Lion of Judah who's conquered sin and death. And that's the victory that he offers us. And he knows, he knows very well, right? He knew the apostles extremely well. We saw St. Peter this morning, right? He knows that we can't do it and that we're weak and that we need help. And that's why he comes to us every day in the Eucharist. He desired to be with us and to nourish us because he knew that our strength was not enough, but that he has everything we need in order to get there. So the Catechism in number 1023 says, Those who die in God's grace and friendship and are perfectly purified live forever with Christ. They are like God forever, for they see him as he is face to face. That's our goal. That's why we came into this world. We were born for heaven. Right now we're just kind of um, 
passing through, all right? You can say that all of us are foreigners. We're not from here. We're just passing through, right? Heaven is our goal. It's what we're made for. That's what we're fighting for. And number 1024 of the Catechism says, heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings. The state of supreme, definitive happiness. The happiness that we long for, those kind of longings or desires in your heart that sometimes it's even difficult to really like describe or know what it is exactly that I'm longing for, all of that will be perfectly fulfilled in heaven when we find ourselves face to face with God forever. In Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, St. Paul tells us, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. All right, he's talking to communities that are facing struggles, that are facing battles. They've received the Holy Spirit, and he's saying this is not a spirit of fear. You don't have to fear falling again. If it happens, it happens. You get up and you go and you start again. But don't live in fear. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of sonship. You are a daughter of God. He goes on to say, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right? It's important to realize that we are co-heirs with Christ. Jesus came to share in our humanity so that we could share in his divinity. He came to share in our struggles and our battles with sin so that we would be able to share in his victory over that same sin and that same death. Which means everything that Christ has now, I will have it too. Because we are co-heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is the same inheritance that Christ has before the Father right now. Glory victory, and love. That is the hope that keeps us moving. Because if it's not that, this is really hard. Right? If I don't have victory promised to me, this battle is really difficult. But I know that I am a co-heir with Christ and he already stands victorious. Which means even though I can't see the victory right now and I can't even imagine it, it's there. And it will come when the day, on the day that he, he decides. Abbot Marmion goes on to say at one point, um, 
he's talking about the relationship between heaven and grace. And he says, grace here below, because the other day we mentioned that um, if you're living in a state of grace now, you're already living in heaven, in a different way, but on this earth. He says, grace here below, glory above. But it is the same God who gives us both. And as I have said, glory is only the unfolding of grace. The divine adoption on earth is hidden and imperfect. In heaven, it is revealed and consummated. Right? Grace makes us sons and daughters of God. That's what we're living here on earth. But it is hidden and imperfect. Right? When you look at the people around you, you don't see whether or not they're in a state of grace. You can't see whether or not they're sons or daughters of God or not. Um, but St. Catherine of Siena, it's really impressive. She was another one of those mystics who the Lord allowed to see, you know, pretty impressive things. And there was one point when she saw something so beautiful and so radiant and so full of light that she thought that it was God himself. And all of a sudden, an angel appeared to her and said to her, that's not God. That's a human soul in the state of grace. Right? If she hadn't been told that, she literally thought that she was already seeing God. That's your soul in the state of grace. It's a share in divine sonship. It's a participation in God's own nature. And what is hidden here will be revealed in heaven. What is only lived in part here will be fully consummated in heaven. He goes on to say that glory is the divine inheritance which comes to us from the fact of our being children of God. It goes back to what we said a moment ago about being co-heirs with Christ. Right? Um, very briefly, we're going to talk about one more thing about heaven. Um, the book of Revelation, if you get a chance, you can look at chapter 21. Verses 22 through 27. I'm just going to read the very last line. Well, they're, they're talking about, you know, the heavenly Jerusalem, where Jesus is, and everything is light and glory. But it says at the end, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter heaven. Right, so very briefly, we're just going to touch on Purgatory. Right? Because it's the four last things, not the five last things. So it's death, judgment, heaven or hell, not purgatory, heaven or hell. Because we know if we go to purgatory, eventually we're going to make it into heaven. Right? But why? Why is purgatory there? Right? Um, sin has two main consequences. Right? One of the consequences is our own guilt for committing those sins. And the other consequence is eternal punishment and temporal punishment, right? We're gonna talk about what this means, right? Um, guilt, I think, is pretty much self-explanatory, right? I committed the sin, it's my fault. I have to ask for forgiveness for that sin. And in confession, the Lord grants me that forgiveness and that guilt is washed away. But eternal and temporal punishment is kind of the results of that sin, right? If you break a window, you can ask forgiveness 
from the owner and he can forgive you, but the window is still broken. Right? There's an effect there that has to be paid. Eternal punishment is the loss of grace in your soul. That is also restored through confession. When I commit a mortal sin, I am no longer in the state of grace. I have to go to confession. And confession takes away the guilt and it takes away that eternal punishment by restoring the life of grace in my soul. Right? But there's something called temporal punishment that confession does not take away. Right? And those are kind of like the effects of sin that I have to purify on my soul before I can get into heaven. When I was little, I remember there was <clears throat> an English priest who did talk to us about this kind of thing. Um, he didn't really understand it at the time, but he used images, and those images kind of stuck with you. And he kind of explained it as um, when you're driving in a car and there's a lot of bugs in the air, right? They just kind of start, you know, they just get stuck on the windshield. All right, it's really gross, but like your, your windshield, if you ever drive through like a swarm of bugs, your windshield is just full of guts, right? And bugs, right? So when you use the windshield wipers, the bugs are gone, right? It'll take the bugs off, but then there's like these huge smear marks on your windshield, right? For what it's worth, the bugs being gone is like God removing the guilt and the eternal punishment, but the temporal punishment, those smear marks, are still there, right? And so you need something more, more than confession to kind of clean that all up and be able to get into heaven, right? That's, that's the image that he used. It's graphic. It can be helpful. But the idea is that I have to make up for my sins, right? How do we do that? Through love and through charity, through doing penance. We can talk about more about this in another moment because there's a whole another talk. But just so that you're aware, purgatory is there to finish purifying our hearts so that we can get into heaven. Because until everything, 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 everything is squeaky clean, we can't get in. And it's really the soul itself that won't stand seeing itself in God's presence until it's clean. Because God is so holy and so loving and so powerful that the soul itself, seeing itself kind of like dirty and unworthy to be in the Lord's presence, it can't present itself before the Lord forever until all of that is cleaned off. So we have two options. We can clean our soul here in this earth, or we can clean our soul in purgatory. But one way or another, it, it has to be clean before we get into heaven. Um, it's going to be better to clean things here on earth because purgatory, uh, purgatory, um, it's really rough. Okay, things can be rough here on earth. Purgatory is going to be worse. Right? There are some saints who describe purgatory as like um, the outer realms of hell itself. Right? Sometimes we think of purgatory as like a waiting room in a dentist's office, which which is true, but like. No one wants to be in a dentist's office. You know what's coming, and you're just like, mm, it's going to be a lot worse than that, okay? We're talking fire and suffering and serious cleansing actions. And the hardest thing about that is that you will no longer be able to do anything to help yourself, right? While we're here on this earth, you can pray, you can go to confession, you can um, exercise virtues, you can have masses said, you can do penance, all these things that help to clean your soul to be able to get to heaven. Once you die, your soul is frozen and you can't do anything else for yourself. We are entirely dependent upon the prayers of other people, which is why 
it's so great to offer masses for the people who have already died because they're in the same situation, right? That's why we offer masses, right? It's not just like, oh, you know, we love them, let's offer mass just for grins and giggles, right? It's actually to clean their souls so that they can get into heaven, right? If there's no one here on earth praying for you while you're in purgatory, you are just going to be there for a long, 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 long time, right? Here on earth, you can cleanse your soul and you get merit for it, right? Merit is another concept that we can talk about in another moment, but the idea is that it's like a reward, right? The sufferings that we go through now cleanse our soul and unite us more perfectly to Christ. And you actually get, like, more glory for what you go through here, right? If you don't do it here and you have to go through it in purgatory, you don't get any more glory for what you are going through. I hope, more or less, you know, that's, that's the, the, the simple idea. We're not going to go more into it right now because I'm already over my time limit. Um, but that's the idea. The idea is that we want to cleanse our souls here on earth, which means we can actually pray and ask the Lord to purify us here, to purge us here, to cleanse our souls here so that the moment we die, we can go straight to heaven without having to pass through purgatory. Right? That's what happens to the martyrs. Martyrs were short. They, pass, they go through the purgatory here on earth because they are literally saying, I love God more than my own life. And whatever suffering they go through in the midst of literally giving their lives to Christ, their soul is entirely cleansed. So they die, and they know as soon as I die, I'm face to face with God forever, and that's it. Right? This is why St. Teresa of Avila, when she was little, when she first found out about that, she grabbed her brother Rodrigo, and she said, let's go find the Muslims. Right? And we'll just tell them we're Christians, and they'll kill us. Right? That's what was going on in Spain at the time. Right? Um, the, the persecution of the church. And their greatest dream was just like, fantastic, that's the easiest way to get to heaven is martyrdom, so let's go find someone to kill us and things will be great. And their, their uncle actually found them out on the road and brought them home and said, enough of that. Like, obviously we don't want martyrdom because it involves the sin of another person. But martyrdom does cleanse our soul and prepare us for heaven. All right. Um, so that's heaven. We want to get to heaven. Right? Um, very briefly, final judgment. Uh, final judgment is the moment of the resurrection of the body, right? As Catholics, we believe that at the end of time, once this world is over, our body and our soul will actually be reunited. And we will be in heaven, body, and soul, right? Because as we said before, a human person is the unity, a composite of body and soul. We are not fully human, unless those two things are together. Which means when we die, and our soul presents itself before God, we are a soulless body in heaven or in hell, just waiting for the end, right? When our body will be reunited to our soul, and we are fully whole again, right? Which means our bodies are gonna be like Jesus's body. The resurrected body is gonna have like more power more abilities, right? Jesus walked through walls, he wasn't confined by time, he didn't have to eat, there was no suffering, there was no death. Our bodies will be like that. 
a glorified, resurrected body in heaven or in hell for all eternity. So when that moment comes of the resurrection, either the, we'll start with hell, either the suffering and the torment we're going through, that increases exponentially, right? Once our body is reunited to our soul, but the same thing happens in heaven, right? Once our body is united to our soul, we will rejoice even further in the presence of God, right? It's important to know that as Catholics, that the body is going to be reunited to the soul. I'm just going to finish with a quote from St. Francis de Sales. Um, he wrote a book called The Introduction to the Devout Life, which is a wonderful book if you get a chance to read it. But the very last thing that he says at the end of the book is this quote. I might read it twice, just so that it sinks in. Right? He, he writes to this woman um, called Philothea, which literally means just, it means lover of God. So he's just writing to a woman who wants to grow in her relationship with God. Um, and he directs himself to her without using her, her real name. He calls her Phil Philothea. So he says, My Philothea, I too say to you, look up to heaven and do not forfeit it for earth. Look down into hell and do not cast yourself into it for the sake of fleeting things. Look upon Jesus Christ and do not renounce him for all the world. And when the labors of, of a devout life seem hard to you, sing with St. Francis of Assisi, such are the joys that lure my sight, all pains grow sweet, all labors light. Right? So basically what he's saying is that you have to keep your eyes on the goal. Right? Look up in the, look into heaven, fix your eyes on heaven, and don't give heaven up for anything on this earth. Then look into hell and realize, I don't want to cast myself into the fires of hell just to be able to enjoy something here on earth that's going to pass anyway. And then look at Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, and do not renounce his love for anything in the world. And he recognizes that things at times will be difficult, and that's why he says, when things get hard, when this seems difficult, remember what St. Francis said. Such are the joys that lure my sight. Such is the joy that's waiting for me in heaven, the love of God, and communion with him forever, that all pain grows sweet and all labors light. That's why the heart of all of this is falling in love with Jesus. Because it's his love that is going to give you the strength you need to make it through the battles. His company will make suffering sweet and it will make the effort seem light. If we're not moved by love of him, we won't make it. Because we don't have the strength in and of ourselves. So one of the prayers that I have found most helpful, I suppose, um, especially when you're going through a moment of struggle, and a lot of times when you just like don't want to do what you know you have to do, 
And just place yourself in front of the Lord and tell him, Lord, make me fall in love with you. Seduce my heart. You know that I don't have the strength to do this and that I need to be madly in love with you in order to take these steps and follow you. So look at me and make me fall in love with you. And if that's all you do during an entire hour of prayer, that's, that's fantastic. And you might not feel anything, but the Lord is working in your heart. And that is one of the most pleasing prayers that you can make to the Lord, because that's what he, he desires. He desires to conquer your heart. And if we ask him to do so, we're opening the doors and we're giving him permission.